First Lieutenant William Lawley, pilot and aircraft commander of Cabin in the Sky 3, has turned over control of his B-17G Flying Fortress to his bombardier as it lines up on the aircraft assembly plants at Leipzig, Germany. German fighters are out today, but so are the new P-51 Mustang escorts, and so far Cabin in the Sky has been untouched. In the nose, Lawley's bombardier Henry Mason presses the bomb release, but there's a problem with the racked activating mechanism and the bombs don't drop. Mason cycles the bomb bay doors and attempts again to get rid of the bombs to no avail. Free from their heavy bomb loads, the other bombers of the 364th Bomb Squadron, 305th Bomb Group, begin to pull away. Cabin in the Sky is in trouble, struggling to stay in formation deep in enemy territory. It's Sunday, February 20th, 1944, day one of what would become known to the heavy bomber crews of the 8th Air Force as the Big Week. It's a week in which the 8th sets out to do something that would have been unfathomable just a few months before. The 8th is looking for a fight with the Luftwaffe. Today it's going to get it, and Lieutenant Lawley and the crew of Cabin in the Sky will be in the thick of it. Welcome to Part 3 on the Flying Fortress in the 8th Air Force. This is the Aviation Medals of Honor podcast. get to the big week in an 8th Air Force, the headquarters element anyway, that is actually looking to engage the Luftwaffe, we need to backtrack a bit to follow the shifting priorities of the 8th. In January 1943, the Casablanca Conference brought Churchill and Roosevelt together to map out the future plans for the prosecution of the war. Several major policy decisions were made, but of most concern to the 8th was that the American argument for daylight precision bombing won out over the British proposal to have the Americans join the night campaign. The debate was over. The U.S. would attack by day and the Brits by night. Together, the effort was called the Combined Bomber Offensive. Its mission, spelled out in the Casablanca Directive, was, quote, the progressive destruction of the German military, industrial, and economic system, and the undermining of the morale of the German people to a point where their armed resistance is fatally weakened, unquote. For their part, the 8th Air Force was to, quote, take every opportunity to attack, to destroy objectives that are unsuitable for night attack, to sustain continuous pressure on German morale, to impose heavy losses on the German fighter force, and to contain German fighter strength away from the Russian and Mediterranean theaters of war. Unquote. With the possible exception of the last one, drawing German fighters in from other theaters, pretty safe to say that in January 1943, the 8th was not meeting those mission objectives. It had yet to drop a single bomb on Germany, and had been engaged in a mostly ineffective campaign against German submarine facilities. Overall, German manufacturing was producing more war material than ever, and the Luftwaffe in Europe was gaining in strength. Germany wasn't getting bombed out of the war just yet, and, while some of the Army Air Forces and RAF Bomber Command held out hope that Germany could be defeated by air power alone, most realized an invasion of the continent would be required. Before that could happen, the Luftwaffe had to be removed as a threat. Air superiority was a must for a seaborne invasion, and the Allies weren't even close yet. In April of 1943, General Ira Eker, promoted from commander of 8th Bomber Command to commander of the entire 8th Air Force, calls for the destruction of the Luftwaffe by targeting airframe, aero engine, aircraft component, and ball bearing plants. Aircraft repair depots and storage facilities were also to be hit, while its fighters were to destroy the Luftwaffe in the air. Further cementing the shift in priorities to the Luftwaffe, the Combined Chiefs of Staff issues the Point Blank Directive on June 14, 1943. It orders the Combined Bomber Offensive to target enemy aircraft production capabilities. The bulk of that effort will fall on the American shoulders. Included in the 113 targets on the Point Blank Priority List are two that would become infamous within the 8th. The Measurement Factory at Regensburg and the ball-bearing plants at Schweinfurt. However, in early 1943, the 8th Bomber Command still lacks the numbers to really be effective. While the Germans have been gaining in strength, the 8th has been pretty stagnant. The North African and Mediterranean campaigns had been the priority for combat power. Thus, the 8th Bomber Command's strength in May of 1943 was still only four B-17 groups and two B-24 groups. The same it had been since October of 1942. 
but back stateside, the American war machine was ramping up. By the end of May 1943, six more B-17 groups would join the fight. On May 14th, the first 200 bomber mission was flown. On May 29th, 279 bombers were launched. Three more groups go operational in June, including the 100th Bomb Group, a hard luck outfit which would soon earn the nickname of the Bloody 100th. By mid-July, the 8th is able to launch over 300 heavies. In hitting that number, Air Force planners feel that they have the numbers necessary to penetrate deep into Germany. Yes, there have been missions around the fringes of Germany, like Jack Mathis's Medal of Honor won to Vegisac. But now with their gains in strength, they felt ready to take the fight to the heart of Germany. However, they aren't the only ones gaining in strength. The Luftwaffe has been ramping up its defenses as well as it pulls aircraft from other theaters to focus on the defense of the right. The Luftwaffe's fighter strength of 270 in May of 1943 increases to 630 by August, most of these single-engine measurement BF-109s. Additionally, a sophisticated early warning network is built out through 1943. Although almost totally unprepared initially for the Allied combined bomber campaign, the Germans have done a remarkable job of adapting to the threat, and they have developed and fielded a sophisticated integrated defense system. Drawing from radio intercepts, visual spotting, and some of the best radar systems then in operation, the Luftwaffe fed all that information into fighter direction control centers, which would plot raids and scramble aircraft to intercept. The net effect was that the Luftwaffe knew shortly after takeoff, if not sooner, that a raid was on. Besides, the Germans could read the weather forecast as good as the 8th planners, and good weather over the continent usually meant the bombers were coming. Axis Sally, the mouthpiece of German propaganda radio popular with U.S. troops in England, would often broadcast that German fighters were ready for the 8th tomorrow, or something to that effect. The bottom line was by the summer of 1943, the Germans were pretty good at detecting and tracking Allied raids, and were able to concentrate their forces at the most effective point. Often that was when the escorting fighters, out of gas, would turn for home. The German fighters would be waiting there to pounce. Imagine being in your bomber, watching the P-47 Thunderbolt escorts wag their wings and turn for home. Well, you can see out ahead of you the contrails of the German fighters as they form up for their attack. The anticipation must have been a terrible thing, probably not unlike the men in the World War I trenches as they waited for the whistle to go over the top. The bomber crews knew death awaited ahead and not everyone was coming home. Second Lieutenant Robert Hyatt, navigator with the 381st Bomb Group, describes what it was like. Quote, they wiggled their wings and went back to their barracks and beer, it brought a lump through your throat because you knew what was coming next. The pilot was on the intercom, telling us to watch with special care. We all knew we were going to be meeting Germans soon. It was an awful, empty feeling watching our fighters go. Unquote. It wasn't just the fighters gaming in numbers. The threat from anti-aircraft fire had also increased greatly over 1943, and over 12,000 anti-aircraft guns were now protecting the Reich. So as we head into the summer of 1943, Things are heating up as two forces build toward a showdown, which will pit the Luftwaffe at its peak effectiveness against the heavy bomber force of the 8th, now flexing its newly gained strength and able to put up hundreds of bombers, but crucially still lacking a long-range fighter escort, as the P-47s of 8th Fighter Command could barely make it to the German border, even with their newly available drop tanks. The pre-war theory of a self-escorting bomber is about to be tested, as the 8th readies plans to strike deep into Germany and targets whose destruction and hopes will have a major effect on the aircraft industry and the Luftwaffe. High pressure settles in over the continent the last week of July, promising several days of good weather. The 8th launches missions on 6 out of 7 days, heading across the North Sea into Norway and Northern Germany in what the crews call Blitz Week. Losses add up over the week amidst the stiffening Luftwaffe defenses. 8th Bomber Command starts Blitzweek with 330 operational aircraft and ends it with less than 200. 87 B-17s are shot down and another dozen or so written off. The equivalent of 90 crews are lost. In just a week's time, the 8th has lost almost a third of its heavy bombers, and some groups suffer more than others. After only nine missions, the newly formed 95th Bomb Group has lost almost half of original crews. Weather sets back in and the battered 8th stands down for roughly two weeks to repair and replace aircraft and to train replacements for the 900-some men lost during Blitzkrieg. Back in action on the 12th of August, 25 forts are lost out of 330 launched against targets in the Ruhr Valley. 
A couple of milk runs to France follow as the 8th waits a break in the weather to launch their deepest strike into Germany yet. 17 August 1943 It's the one-year anniversary of the first heavy bomber raid of the 8th Air Force. It has come a long way since the 97th Bomb Group struck Rowan, France with 12 B-17Es. The 8th now has 16 bomb groups operational and can send out an excess of 400 heavy bombers on any given day. Today, the 8th looks to launch 376 bombers in a coordinated strike against the Messerschmitt factory at Regensburg and the ball-bearing works at Schweinfurt. The combined effort is supposed to be a decisive blow against the German war machine, the Luftwaffe in particular. The Regensburg factory is producing about 380 of the approximately 650 ME-109s produced each month. The Schweinfurt ball-bearing works were vital to much of the war effort, but in particular the aircraft industry, which required hundreds if not thousands of bearings in every airplane produced. It was a highly concentrated industry as well, with Schweinfurt producing almost half of all German ball-bearings. Knocking out was supposed to have an immediate and dramatic effect. The Allies thought a successful attack on Schweinfurt could result in a 30% drop in armament production across the board. Now no one thought these were going to be easy missions but the targets were deemed important enough that the expected losses were worth it. The planners at the 8th were also operating on several assumptions they believed would limit losses to acceptable numbers. One was that the Luftwaffe had been significantly attrited over the course of the last several months. Reality was that the bomber gunner's claims were vastly inflated, and the Luftwaffe was stronger in numbers than ever. Another assumption was that the heartland of Germany was undefended, and once crews were able to penetrate the outer fighter defenses, the so-called fighter belt, around the German border, they would be basically unopposed in the German interior. Lastly was that the size of the bomber forces was itself a deterrent. That magic number of 300 bombers provided enough concentrating firepower to protect itself. General Eager would tell his boss, Hap Arnold, Chief of Staff of the Army Air Forces, back in October 1942, that the 8th was, quote, absolutely convinced. 300 heavy bombers can attack any target in Germany with less than 4% losses. Unquote. Never mind that losses were exceeding 6% with damage rates in the 35% range just striking on the fringes of Germany and in occupied Europe. Well, that's just because we don't have enough bombers yet. There were indications that none of these assumptions were correct. A disastrous mission to Kiel that saw the biggest single mission loss to date and the losses of Blitz Week in July, for example but it would take several more months and many more losses for those lessons to sink in. After several delays for weather, the 17th of August looks promising. The 4th Bombardment Wing, soon to be reorganized as the 3rd Bombardment Division, so we'll just go with that, led by their new commander, Colonel Curtis LeMay, yes, LeMay again, will launch 146 bombers against the Measurement Factory at Regensburg and continue on to land in North Africa hopefully confusing the Luftwaffe defenders and preventing a long return flight through hostile airspace. An additional 230 aircraft from the 1st Wing, soon to be the 1st Bomb Division, so again we'll go with that, under command of Brigadier General Robert Williams, would follow the Regensburg Strike Force 15 minutes in trail to hit the ball-bearing works at Schweinfurt. It's supposed to be a coordinated assault designed to split the German defenses. The thought that there was the 3rd Bomb Division leading the way would have to fight their way in, and the 1st Bomb Division and trail to Schweinfurt would have to fight its way out. While headquarters at 8th Air Force might have had confidence in their plan, as the curtains were pulled back in briefing rooms across southeastern England that morning to reveal the targets, their confidence wasn't necessarily shared by the men who would execute the missions. Staff Sergeant John Thompson of the 384th Bomb Group recollected, quote, When the sheet over the chart was removed, a moan went up. Some men stood up and cursed and expressed their bitter dissatisfaction. Too deep. So many miles without fighter protection. It was sheer fear which gripped us. Me too. Unquote. Second Lieutenant Darrell Gust of the 303rd Bomb Group was more direct. Quote, I thought to myself, what idiot at 8th Air Force Headquarters dreamed this one up? Unquote. Nevertheless, briefings were completed and airplanes manned with a wary eye to the sky. Low clouds and ground fog had settled in across England and takeoff was twice delayed. 3rd Bomb Division is running out of time, though. They can't afford more delays if they're going to reach the unfamiliar North African airfields in daylight. They have to go now. The decision is made to split the forces. The Regensburg aircraft will launch immediately, while the Schweinfurt force remains on hold. It would end up being a three and a half hour delay between the elements, and the advantages of two forces splitting the enemy defensive effort was lost. 
Colonel LeMay has trained the 3rd Bomb Division well. His insistence on practicing instrument takeoffs gets everyone safely airborne and assembled into three wings to form their combat boxes, with three groups in the lead wing and two each in the last two wings. As always, a few abort for mechanical issues, so it's a force 139 that proceeds towards Regensburg. Meanwhile, the decision to split the bomber forces affected the escort fighters as well. It was the worst of two options for the fighters. Too long a delay to be able to cover both missions, but not enough delay to land, refuel, and rearm. The escort force would have to be split as well. Two fighter groups would escort the Regensburg force, while four groups would stay behind to escort the Schweinfurt raid. Consequently, as the 139 bombers of the 3rd Bomb Division crossed the coast over occupied Europe, only 24 Thunderbolts are covering the three combat wings, which are spread out over 15 miles from lead to tail. While the lead wing is protected, the rear wings are not, and the first of the German defenders take advantage of that. Bockwolf 190s from JG-26 tear into the unprotected second and third combat wings. ME-109s join in as well, and fortresses begin to fall. Up front with the lead combat group, the 353rd group's Thunderbolts are out of gas and have to bingo home, but the 56th fighter group is arriving on scene to take over the escort duties. The air battle slacks off as the Germans for the most part depart to refuel and rearm, but the respite for the fortresses doesn't last long as the 56th has to turn for home just short of the German border. Already five forces have been lost, and now the remainder are going to be on their own for the next 300 miles to Regensburg, equal to about 70 minutes of flying time. With the departure of the initial wave of enemy fighters, the crews hoped that they had broken through the fighter belt and their route to Regensburg would be clear, but the break in the action wasn't a last. 26 fresh ME-109s from JG-50, along with a handful of twin-engine night fighters, are climbing to attack. Fat on gas and free from concerns of escort fighters, the Germans could take their time and set up for head-on passes through the formation. Over the next 30 minutes, nine more forts are shot down. To the men enduring the attacks, there seemed to be no way through. In the words of Sergeant Jim Kaler, a radio operator with the 390th Bomb Group, the high group in the lead wing, quote, From our position, I could see behind us, and there were planes falling everywhere, a lot of ours and a lot of theirs. Many trails of smoke could be seen coming up from the ground from crashed planes. A lot of brave men had died. A lot more were destined for prison camps. This was a sight that would never leave me. I remember thinking to myself, Mother and Daddy and Myrtle, my fiance, I guess I won't be coming home after all. Unquote. The third bomb division has lost approximately ten percent of their numbers and are still thirty minutes out from the target, but the battle again slackens. Back to the three hundred ninetieth bomb group, as pilot second lieutenant John Wenzel recounts, I've been observing in complete fascination until it suddenly came to me that in a few moments I would be dead and I began to wonder how it would feel. There had seemed to be no possibility of survival, so many of the enemy all around, all seemingly intent upon our destruction. Suddenly one of the engines was hit, the right outboard, and I moved to feather it. A feathered engine is, of course, just a goad to fighters who need no goading anyway, but somehow seemed more determined to finish off a cripple. To make matters worse, we fell out of formation, for we were unable to keep up due to the loss of power. All seemed lost, and my eyes were drawn to the earth far below and to the remains of our group now somewhat above. How pathetic they looked with the numerous gaps in the formation, hardly like a group at all, so unlike our former majestic appearance. Decimated or not, I longed to be back up with them for protection, and now it was merely a question of when we would be finished off. Then, amazingly, the impossible happened. The sky became quiet and almost serene, and we managed to get up behind the remains of the group. Unquote. The German fighters have done their worst. Out of gas and ammo, for the most part they pitch out of the fight and return to their bases. The battle was pretty much over, although some stragglers continued mostly half-hearted attacks. This time there were no more fighters to send up. The 3rd Division had broken through the defenses and the way to the target was mostly clear. 14 bombers had been lost. Another two had fallen out of formation and would later be lost. 123 make it to the target, and under clear skies, the bombing results are assessed to be good. Mission Commander Curtis LeMay would cable London from North Africa, quote, objective believed totally destroyed, unquote. As we have seen before, reality was quite different. Yes, the bombing was accurate, and bombs were scattered throughout the target area, 
Aircraft are destroyed. Buildings are damaged. But the critical large assembly building is not one of the ones hit. The majority of the machine tools are undamaged. And the factory is producing fighters again in less than a month. One lucky break for the Allies, although not known at the time, was the aircraft jigs for what would become the world's first operational jet fighter, the ME-262, are destroyed in the raid. Although gross incompetence by the Nazis would have a much greater effect on the ME-262's delayed introduction, this lucky break helps as well. On another positive note, the planned route to North Africa is effective. There are a few fighters still hanging around that make attacks, but as the bombers continue southwest off target, feared attacks from the Luftwaffe and Italian fighters don't materialize. The main body of the 3rd Division is basically unmolested on its journey to Africa. However, battle damage and fuel exhaustion take a toll, and on the 5-hour trip an additional 7 aircraft are lost. 119 of the 146 that launched from England 11 hours before would land in North Africa. In total, the Regensburg Strike Force would lose 24 aircraft. Further 8 aircraft were damaged beyond repair and never make it back to England. Total losses in airplanes? 32, or 22% of the force. The 100th Bomb Group, not yet called the Bloody 100th, but on their way to earning that reputation, would fare the worst, losing 9 of 21 aircraft. Logistics Officer Lieutenant Colonel Oliver Tyler was assigned the task of preparing the airfield at Tulurgma for the 3rd Division and was on hand as the main force of B-17s arrived. In his words, quote, As the ships were parked, out tumbled the crews, accompanied by a general clamor as some called for help for the wounded, Others indulged in bitter cursing, and a few vowed vehemently to never fly in combat again. I was particularly distressed by the sight of one very young sergeant climbing out, leaning his head against the side of a ship and sobbing convulsively. I guessed, or may have been told, that the blanket-wrapped, dismembered remains of an airman which were being passed out of the ship had been a buddy of his. These people have been through hell, and they showed it. Unquote. In the meantime... The Schweinfurt portion of the mission is going through its own hell. The airfields of the 1st Bomb Division remained socked in as the Regensburg force was fighting its way through Germany. By the time the weather clears, the Schweinfurt force that was supposed to be 15 minutes behind the Regensburg force instead is now three and a half hours behind. The coordinated attack designed to overwhelm the German defenses has fallen apart due to the delays and the German fighters have time to refuel and rearm. Not only was the benefit of mutual support lost, the Germans have been concentrating their forces to hit the Regensburg force on its return to England. Even as the 3rd Division was still fighting its way to the target, Luftwaffe commanders were pulling fighters from the north and interior of Germany to attack it on its return leg. Available assets are now more than double which had opposed the 3rd Division on its ingress to Regensburg, somewhere around 250 to 300 fighters. When the Regensburg force continues to North Africa, those concentrated forces are available to hit the inbound Schweinfurt force now assembled into four wings of three groups each and crossing the coast. There are some interceptions early on while under RAF Spitfire and 8th Fighter Command Thunderbolt Escort, but only one fort is lost. The real battle commences as the P-47s turn for home near the Belgian town of Eupen. The bombers will be on their own for the next two hours with 200-plus German fighters converging on them, and the fortresses begin to fall. An additional 23 are lost on the way to the target. The three groups of the lead wing take the brunt of the German attacks. Staff Sergeant John Thompson was a waste gunner with the 384th Bomb Group, the low group in the second wing. Quote, I witnessed something that mankind will never see again. It was rare to see hundreds and hundreds of aircraft in the sky at once. On one occasion, our formation made a small turn and I was able to look back. It looked like a parachute invasion of Germany. There were planes in flat spins, planes in big wide spins, Planes were going down so often that it became useless to report them. My God, I had never seen anything like it before. It had always just been one plane going down at a time. Unquote. Second Lieutenant Joe Baggs was the lead bombardier of the 384th Bomb Group and watched as aircraft from the first wing fell. Quote, I could see the groups ahead of me, particularly the 381st, which was directly in front of me. I saw B-17s doing things that day which were unbelievable. I thought I had seen a lot up to that time, but I saw more that day. There were aircraft stalling, slow rolling, wings disintegrating, chutes on fire. Counted 11 going down from just in front of us before we reached the target. It took quite a beating. I remember praying that at least we would get to the target. I didn't think we would ever get back. That seemed a foregone conclusion. 
but I did want to get to the target and do what I was supposed to do, if only for the sake of those 11 crews I watched go down on the way there. Unquote. The lead group, the 91st Bomb Group, would lose almost half its aircraft before reaching the target. Overall, the forces lost 24 bombers, 17 of those in the lead combat wing. Many others are damaged, hoping they could stay with the main formation of bombers. As the bombers approach the target, the German attacks slacken as fighters depart the battle low on fuel and ammunition. The bomber results are poor. Unlike the well-defined aircraft factory at Regensburg, the Schweinfurt factories are smaller and harder to identify. Last-minute changes to the target run, given just prior to takeoff, didn't help either. It would seem that the crews were rattled as well, which was certainly understandable given the loss of almost one-third of the lead combat wing prior to reaching the target. An unknown pilot with the 381st Bomb Group said of the bombing results, quote, If the lead bombardier was shaking as much as I was, he had reason to miss. We didn't hear till later that we had done so badly. There was no emotion about it. The main thought was, I survived. But there was soon talk that we would have to go back again. Unquote. Crews turned off target and faced 78 minutes of flying time before they were due to rendezvous with their Thunderbolt escorts. They are down 29 aircraft at this point. Surprisingly, they are for the most part unmolested for about an hour. The Germans had gambled on the force turning south off target to follow the Regensburg Forest in North Africa. It had most of its fighters staged there, and with the turn back to England, they were not in position to intercept. A second large force of Luftwaffe fighters makes the intercept, but is mostly deterred by the timely arrival of the 56 fighter group. Aircraft were lost on the return leg as damaged aircraft finally give up the ghost or stragglers fall victim to German fighters, but overall, it's not a repeat of the ingress. 36 bombers are lost in total from the 1st Division Schweinfurt Force. Added in the 24 aircraft against Regensburg, and the 8th loses a total of 60 bombers, with many more shot up and returning with dead or wounded crewmen. 11 of the returning bombers are written off, so a total of 71 aircraft lost. More important were the men, the dead and wounded, prisoners of war, Invaders on the run through occupied Europe, adrift at sea, or interned for the duration in Switzerland. Several crews are rescued that had to ditch, but the 8th is lost in the equivalent of 54 full crews. It's a big blow. There's an attempt to portray the strikes as great victories. 288 German fighters down was the accepted number, which would certainly have been considered a victory in the terms of the war aims of degrading the German fighter force. But as we've seen before, these numbers were wildly optimistic. Actual German losses to B-17s were just 21 fighters. The escort fighters got another 21. There are a few mishaps as well. So at the end of the day, 47 German fighters are lost. 16 pilots are killed and 9 wounded. It's a clear victory in the air for the Germans. The damage to the Regensburg factory is overestimated. Loss production seems to be in the neighborhood of 800 fighters not the 2,000 to 2,500 estimated by the Allies. There's an attempt to positively spin the Schweinfurt results as well, but it's clear that little damage was done. Both would need another visit from the 8th, but not anytime soon. The 8th only flies a few missions over the next several weeks, all short-range missions under continuous fighter coverage as it recovers from the beating it took. 8th Bomber Command doesn't make another large effort into Germany until September 6th against Stuttgart with 338 aircraft. This time is going to be different. We learned our lesson and we're not going to split our effort this time. Our concentration of forces will provide the detection we need. That's the idea anyway. The mission probably should have been canceled for the weather. As it was, the group struggled to form up and find their targets. By now, the Luftwaffe has about 800 single-engine fighters and 180 twin-engine day fighters available, with about two-thirds of that force concentrated in Germany itself. The Luftwaffe tactics of concentrating on one bomber formation at a time Dispersing it with rockets from twin-engine fighters and closing for the front with single-engine fighters was proving very effective, especially vulnerable to the low groups of the lead or trail wings. The Luftwaffe takes advantage of the strung-out formations and 45 forts are lost to various causes. Down in what the air crew called Purple Heart Corner, the low group of the trail wing, the 388th Bomb Group would lose 11 of its 21 forts. Its 563rd Bomb Squadron, the group's low and most exposed squadron, was completely wiped out. Schweinfurt-Regensburg had not been an anomaly. The 8th was going to suffer greatly on any deep penetration. Certainly that was felt at the group and squadron level, but that lesson had not yet sunk in at higher headquarters. 
Difficult for an organization to admit a deeply ingrained doctrine wasn't working, and the 8th Air Force wasn't quite ready to go there yet. To be fair, there seemed to be little alternatives. The idea that a fighter could be built to escort bombers to the limits of their range seemed impossible. Range required a lot of fuel. A lot of fuel required a big multi-engine airplane, and big multi-engine airplanes don't make for good fighters. Long-range escorts didn't seem like a problem that could be solved, so the 8th soldiered on, but there were cracks in the former ironclad belief that the bomber will always get through. The 8th went so far as to experiment with night bombing, sending a handful of forts along on RAF night raids several times in September, but ultimately it would take a week in October 1943 to finally see the end of the belief of a decade or more in the making, a belief going back to the first flight of the Model 299 Fortress and the rise of the bomber mafia at the Air Corps Tactical School in the 1930s. It was going to take another trip to Schweinfurt. 8 October. 399 fortresses attacked Bremen. 30 are shot down. 9 October. 378 attacked Marienburg. 28 are lost. 10 October. 236 attacked Munster. 30 bombers are lost. 88 bombers have been shot down in three days of operations. 880 men lost, more when you include the dead and wounded on the aircraft who returned home. Then comes Black Thursday. Thursday, October 14, 1943. The 8th Air Force is heading back to Schweinfurt. The 1st Bond Division, which had led the August mission to Schweinfurt, would again take the lead. 383 bombers under the command of Colonel Bud Peasley launch under marginal weather conditions. Things go wrong early on when 60 B-24s of the 2nd Bond Division fail to join up with the main force in the weather and proceed to an alternate target. After losing more aircraft and mechanical aborts, it will be 257 B-17s of the 1st and 3rd Bond Divisions that will make the attack. In opposition is a German fighter force three times as strong as the one that opposed the first Schweinfurt attack. Once again, as the escorts turn for home, the Luftwaffe is there to pounce. 21 B-17s are shot down prior to reaching the target, but unlike the first mission to Schweinfurt when the return home was mostly unopposed, this time German fighters are waiting as the forts come off target and they rip into the American formations. To make matters worse, weather is closed in back in England and the escort fighters for the return leg home are unable to take off. This time there would be no little friends to meet the returning bombers and drive off the Luftwaffe, and the bombers would be under almost a constant attack until the English Channel. An additional 39 B-17s are lost on the return leg to England. 60 in total. 20% of the attacking force is gone. Five more are destroyed trying to land. An additional 17 aircraft are written off due to damage sustained. Altogether, a total of 82 B-17s lost. A 28% loss rate. 642 men missing, dead, or wounded. Back in Washington, Hap Arnold would declare to the press, quote, Now we got Schweinfurt. Unquote. But it certainly doesn't look like a victory to the men of the 8th Bomber Command. The 305th Bomb Group has lost 13 of 15 aircraft. The 306, 10 of 15. The 384th, 12 of 16. Only 33 bombers return home without damage. The men watch as bombers recover with props feathered, gaping holes in airplanes, red flares shot off signifying wounded aboard. They see the empty beds that night in barracks across East Anglia. German bearing production falls off about 5%. The effect on the German war machine is negligible. In seven days of operations, the 8th has lost 148 heavies. The myth of the self-escorting bomber, a flying fortress capable of fighting its way to the target and back, was finally dead. The Luftwaffe has achieved air superiority over much of Germany as the 8th restricts missions to within escort fighter range. Eker cables Hap Arnold to, quote, Send every possible fighter here as soon as possible, especially emphasize earliest arrival of P-38s and Mustangs. Unquote. For a short time in the fall of 1943, the Luftwaffe controlled the skies over Germany, but the Luftwaffe was bleeding as well. Despite their operational losses and the bombing of aircraft factories, it's not really aircraft that are a problem at this point. The Germans were producing over 2,000 aircraft a month in mid-1943, up from just 200 a month in late 1941. Fighter production wouldn't actually peak until 1944 before it finally drops off in 1945. But maintaining production numbers came at a cost. The Germans could not afford the downtime it would take to retool factories and retrain workers to produce new aircraft types. 
so the backbone of the Luftwaffe remained the Mami 109 until the end of the war. With notable exceptions like the Messerschmitt 262, the Luftwaffe steadily lost the performance edge they had enjoyed early in the war. The 109 was still a dangerous opponent in the hands of a skilled pilot, but skilled pilots were becoming an issue. The Luftwaffe had 767 pilots shot down in the last four months of 1943. Now many of those pilots shot down lived to fight another day, an advantage of fighting over your own territory, but the repeated exposure took its toll. Unlike the Americans and Brits, the Luftwaffe didn't rotate its experienced pilots out of combat. With the weight of the combined Bonnevar offensive crushing down on them, it was an all-hands-on-deck effort to stop the destruction to the fatherland. Inevitably, an old hand's luck would run out, and when one was lost, there wasn't a well-trained pilot in reserve ready to take his place. His replacement would most likely be a new pilot fresh from training. The Luftwaffe didn't have the luxury of time or resources to ensure proper training for its pilots and was sending them into combat with about 150 hours of flying time, which would drop even further to an average of 110 hours in 1944, with maybe 10 to 15 hours of that in their combat aircraft. 150 hours could hardly be considered sufficient to safely fire a powerful fighter, especially a narrow-track tail dragger like the 109, and accidents were common. In that same period in 1943, where 767 aircraft were shot down, the Luftwaffe would lose an additional 1,052 aircraft to accidents. In contrast, Army Air Force pilot trainees would have about 200 hours before getting their wings, and another 100 hours in training in their combat aircraft prior to showing up at their operational unit, so basically double the experience of the Luftwaffe counterparts. I can't imagine going into a fight and routing hundreds of aircraft with less than 150 hours total time and 10 hours in type. Air combat is a dynamic and demanding flying environment. To stay alive and be successful, you have to keep track of how the bigger fight is evolving around you while simultaneously max-performing your aircraft in individual combat, something that only comes with experience. The lack of experience was showing by early 1944, and the replacement Luftwaffe pilots were easy pickings for 8th Fighter Command. Fighter pilots of the 8th were no longer the green pilots that had first arrived in England. They are aggressive, well-trained killers with an advantage in numbers and aircraft performance. The only thing keeping the Luftwaffe in the fight at this point was the limited range of the Allied fighters, and that would change after Schweinfurt, when escort fighters finally became a priority, and not just a priority, but a necessity for the 8th. The solution had been under their noses for at least several months now in an amazing little fighter called the P-51 Mustang. I'm not going to go into detail on the development of the Mustang. That will come in a later episode. For now, just know that the 354th Fighter Group and its Merlin-powered P-51Bs disembarked in England on November 1, 1943. On December 1st, the 354th flies its first mission. The game just changed dramatically. Also arriving in November 1943 is 1st Lieutenant William Lawley. The 23-year-old Lawley had enlisted in the Army Air Force in August of 1942. Like many boys growing up in the 20s and 30s, he had always wanted to fly, and with the war came his opportunity. Following pilot and operational training, Lawley and his crew complete the Atlantic crossing in a new B-17 and are posted to the 364th Bomb Squadron, 305th Bomb Group. The 305th had been absolutely devastated on the October 14th Schweinfurt mission. Fifteen aircraft crossed the coast of occupied Europe that day en route to Schweinfurt. Three would survive long enough to drop their bombs, and only two would make it home. The entire 364th squadron was lost. Fall of 1943 was a tough time for the bomber crews. The average lifespan of an 8th Air Force crewman in 1943 was just 11 missions, and only 1 in 4, 26% to be precise, were completing their 25-mission tour. Lieutenant Lawley was one of many showing up in England as the 8th replaces the losses of the fall. Poor weather sets in again through much of November and December, and radar bombing through the undercast is the norm. The new techniques aren't too effective yet, but valuable experience in radar bombing is gained. The weather has the benefit of mostly keeping the Luftwaffe on the ground, a good thing for the 8th as it builds up its numbers of aircraft and aircrew again. It's not till December 5th that the 8th puts in a bigger effort to Schweinfurt, with over 500 bombers targeting Emden, Germany. While the crews may appreciate the break from the punishing days of October, headquarters was feeling the pinch. The planned invasion of the continent is creeping closer, and the Allies have yet to break the Luftwaffe. Hap Arnold decides to make changes. In late December, Eker is promoted to command the Mediterranean Allied Air Forces, and General Jimmy Doolittle, Medal of Honor winner from the famous Tokyo Raid of 1942, takes over command of the 8th Air Force. 
To Eker, it hardly feels like a promotion. He had led the eighth from his humble beginnings through the difficult times of 1943, and now, just as things seem to be tipping in the eighth's favor, he's relieved of command. But organizations sometimes need to be shaken up, and the clock is ticking on the planned invasion date of May 1944. Arnold's guidance to his new commander Doolittle is simple. Quote, destroy the enemy air force wherever you find them, in the air, on the ground, and in the factories. Unquote. Changes in the air. The 8th continues to grow in strength, and by mid-December it could put up over 700 bombers and 600 fighters on any given day. A new aggressive mindset takes over in the 8th. Under Doolittle, the tactics of fighter escorts hugging the bombers are thrown out. The shackles are taken off and the fighters are cleared to aggressively seek out and destroy the enemy. The new attitude is epitomized by a visit by Doolittle with Major General Bill Kepner, the commander of 8th Fighter Command. Doolittle sees a sign on the wall of Kepner's office that says, the first duty of the 8th Air Force fighter is to bring the bombers back alive. Doolittle tells him, take that sign down. Put up another one that says, the first duty of the 8th Air Force fighters is to destroy German fighters. Kepner asks him, you mean you're authorizing me to take the offensive? Doolittle replies with, I'm directing you to. The air campaign in Europe just became less about destroying the enemy through the strategic bombing of his manufacturing capabilities and more about getting the Luftwaffe airborne for the fighters to engage. Don't tell them, but the bombers of the 8th just became bait. Planning begins in late 1943 for a joint RAF-American operation designed to crush the Luftwaffe in a week-long series of attacks against the German aircraft industry. By the new year, the plan designated Operation Argument was ready to go and was just awaiting a break in the weather. In the meantime, the 8th continues to grow stronger. By February, the 8th could launch over 1,000 heavy bombers and 700 fighters, including 100 of the new Mustangs on any given mission. Finally, in mid-February, high pressure moves in and the weather on the continent is forecast to clear for several days. Despite a thick cloud layer over the English bases, Lieutenant General Spots, commander of the overall American air effort in Europe, makes the decision to launch the U.S. side of Operation Argument, directing Doolittle to, quote, let him go, unquote. Operation Argument was on. To the crews, it would come to be known as the Big Week. Lieutenant Lawley and his crew are awakened early on the 20th. 8th Bomber Command is going to hit multiple targets across Germany with over 1,000 bombers. Along with 417 other B-17s from the 1st Division, Lieutenant Lawley and the crew of Cabin in the Sky are heading for the aircraft assembly plants in the Leipzig area. By now, Lieutenant Lawley is a veteran of 10 missions. He is optimistic and comments to his bombardier that the mission doesn't sound too bad. After all, they ran under fighter cover the entire way. The crew mans their bomber and a short while later are rolling down the runway in their heavily laden aircraft. It's always a dangerous proposition launching the thousands of airplanes at close intervals through the weather. Lieutenant Lawley and his co-pilot would have to carefully monitor their instruments as they flew the route to the group assembly point. Errors in airspeed, headings, or timing could result in a mid-air collision, likely a fatal proposition for everyone involved. Pilot Charles Alling describes a harrowing near-miss in his book, A Mighty Fortress. Quote, Over the next four minutes, we continued our ascent through the clouds at 150 miles an hour. We were all quiet, knowing the departure in the thick cloud cover was troublesome and a potential nightmare, but so far, so good. At 2,000 feet, I was stunned to see a B-17 just off my right wing heading directly towards our bow. Instinctively, I thrust the steering wheel forward to push down the nose to avoid impact. We came within a few feet of a mid-air collision. The tunnel of air rocked our plane as the other B-17 roared above. Our plane then started to plunge downward, gaining momentum every second. Snow plastered the windshield, and to our horror, we headed straight down towards the ground. All I could do to save our ship was to pull back on the controls with all the strength I had. She wasn't able to break out of the dive. I knew we only had seconds left. Then Glenn jammed both his feet against the instrument panel and hauled the steering wheel up against his chest. Now I felt our plane miraculously responding. She shuddered and shook with a thunderous noise as gravity finally released its terrifying grip. Unquote. They survived their near midair. Many others would not, showing that the Germans were not the only danger out there. Accidents were an almost daily occurrence which claimed many lives over the course of the war as exhausted, inexperienced aircrew flew overloaded and worn-out aircraft through the challenging British weather. But today, everything goes smoothly for the 305th Bomb Group as they break out through the overcast. Squadrons assembled into groups, groups into wings, 
and wings into divisions. It's a couple hour process before they even turn towards Germany. This isn't cruising from New York to LA with a modern airplane with hydraulic controls on autopilot. It's manual flying in close formation, jockeying around a sluggish bomber in close proximity to several other airplanes. It's fatiguing work where the price paid for a lapse in concentration is a mid-air collision or a loose formation, just what the enemy fighters are looking for. As the first division bomber stream heads towards the target, German fighters rise up to oppose the raid, exactly what Doolittle spots in the fighter pilots of 8th Fighter Command wanted, although the bomber crews probably could have done without. The Luftwaffe is engaged by the escorts, but the bomber stream is spread out over 10 to 20 miles, and the 8th still only has about 100 of the long-range Mustangs. Some enemy get through the fighter screen, but Lieutenant Lawley and his crew arrived over the target unscathed. The bomb bay doors and cabin in the sky open, and the bombardier Lieutenant Mason hits the release to drop his bombs. But there's a problem with the release mechanism, and the bombs don't drop. Lieutenant Mason cycles the bomb bay doors and attempts another drop. Still nothing. Free from the weight of their bombs, the rest of the formation turns towards home. Cabin in the sky is struggling to stay in the protective formation when a flak hit coast aboard knocks out one of their engines. Down to three engines with the weight of their bombs, Cabin in the Sky drifts aft, and German fighters pounce on the straggler. Several Fock Wolves race in on a head-on attack, cannons flashing. There's an explosion in the cockpit, and Lieutenant Lawley momentarily blacks out. He comes to a moment later to chaos in the cockpit. A 20mm shell is coming through the co-pilot's windscreen. Freezing air roars in through the gaping hole. Lawley's co-pilot is dead, having taken the brunt of the 20mm explosion. Blood and gore everywhere. Lawley is nearly blinded from the blood and from his own wounds to his face. He signals the crew to bail out as he tries to level the aircraft. Cabin in the sky is pitched over to a steep dive due to what's left of the co-pilot's body slumped over the controls. Despite serious wounds to his right arm, Lieutenant Lawley pulls the co-pilot off the controls and manages to pull the aircraft out of the dive. Bombardier Lieutenant Mason climbs into the cockpit and continues aft to check on the rest of the crew. He comes back to report that two gunners are seriously wounded and can't bail out. Indeed, Mason and the flight engineer are the only ones not wounded. Lieutenant Lawley makes the decision to stick with the aircraft to try to save the seriously wounded. He gives the crew the option to jump, but only the uninjured flight engineer takes him up on it. He disappears out of the stricken bomber to spend the rest of the war in a POW camp, and I can only imagine a lifetime of regret for his choice to abandon his crew. I'm not going to judge him, though. As the flight engineer, he would have been a few feet behind the pilots in the top turret. Covered with the blood and brains of his comrade, freezing wind rushing in through a gaping hole in the cockpit, one engine out, another on fire. Well, even brave men have their breaking point, and hopefully his decision did not haunt him. The remaining crew of Cabin in the Sky was in serious trouble, now on their own deep in enemy territory. One engine out, a second on fire leaving a trail of smoke for German fighters to hone in on, but they aren't going to abandon their wounded comrades. Lolly managed to distinguish the engine fire, and Lieutenant Mason finally managed to jettison the stuck bomb load that began all the troubles. At one point on their return, a pack of ME-109s finds them. Lieutenant Lawley evades in the clouds as best he can as his gunners fight off the enemy fighters. For whatever reasons, the 109s don't press their attack, and Cabin in the Sky continues its journey home. But Lieutenant Lawley's wounds are taking a toll. He's weak from blood loss and the physical exertion of single-handedly flying the heavy bomber for hours. They make it to the English Channel before Lieutenant Lawley slips into unconsciousness, but Lieutenant Mason is there to revive him. Approaching the English coast, another engine sputters and dies. Lawley is down to one good engine and is searching through the low clouds and drizzle for somewhere, anywhere, to land. Miraculously, RAF Redhill emerges out of the haze ahead, and Lieutenant Lawley sets down his aircraft on its belly about five hours after their ordeal started. Everyone aboard survives. Bombardier Lieutenant Mason was awarded the Silver Star for his part in getting their stricken bomber back home. Lieutenant Lawley's Medal of Honor citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action above and beyond the call of duty, 20 February 1944, while serving as a pilot of a B-17 aircraft on a heavy bombardment mission over any occupied continental Europe. Coming off the target, he was attacked by approximately 20 enemy fighters, shot out of formation, and his plane severely crippled. Eight crew members were wounded. The co-pilot was killed by a 20mm shell. One engine was on fire. The control shot away. And First Lieutenant Lawley seriously and painfully wounded about the face. Forcing the co-pilot's body off the controls, he brought the plane out of a steep dive, flying with his left hand only. 
Blood covered the instruments and windshield, and visibility was impossible. With a full bomb load, the plane was difficult to maneuver, and the bombs could not be released because the racks were frozen. After the ordered bailout had been given, one of the waste gunners informed the pilot that two crew members were so severely wounded that it would be impossible for them to bail out. With the fire and the engine spreading, the danger of an explosion was imminent. Because of the helpless condition of his wounded crew members, First Lieutenant Lawley elected to remain with the ship and to bring them to safety if it was humanly possible, giving the other crew members the option of bailing out. Enemy fighters again attacked, but by using masterful evasive action, he managed to lose them. One engine again caught on fire and was distinguished by skillful flying. First Lieutenant Lawley remained at his post, refusing first aid until he had collapsed from sheer exhaustion caused by loss of blood, shock, and the energy he had expended in keeping control of his plane. He was revived by the bombardier and again took over the controls. Coming over the Ingo's coast, one engine ran out of gasoline and had to be feathered. Another engine started to burn and continued to do so until a successful crash landing was made on a small fighter base. Through his heroism and an exceptional firing skill, First Lieutenant Lawley rendered outstanding, distinguished, and valorous service to our nation. Lieutenant Lawley recovered from his wounds and flew four more missions before being reassigned stateside. He would stay in the service after the war and would retire in 1972 as a colonel. Two other 8th Air Force B-17 crewmen would receive the Medal of Honor for actions on that same day and under similar circumstances. Navigator 2nd Lieutenant Walter Tremper and ball turret gunner Staff Sergeant Alterbard Matthews of the 351st Bomb Group had nursed their bomber home after the co-pilot was killed and the pilot seriously wounded. Over England, they ordered the rest of the crew to bail out. With the unconscious pilot unable to jump, they attempted to land the bomber but were killed when they stalled and crashed. Operation Argument, to go down in history as the big week, would go on for five more days as the American and Commonwealth forces continued to target Germany's aircraft production capabilities until the weather brought it to an end on February 26th. Over the week, the 8th had launched 3,300 bomber sorties. It lost 266 bombers in the effort, almost 100 more than were lost that week in October that, that had brought the 8th Bomber Command to a crisis point. But due to the larger numbers of bombers, the loss rate was down considerably to 6%, and the 8th was in a position where it could absorb those losses without much effect on its operations. Germany, on the other hand, could not. It lost over 500 fighters in air combat over the six days. 700 ME-109s alone in various phases of production had to be written off due to attacks on aircraft factories. And while it was short of the 70% loss that the Allies claimed, overall aircraft production dipped 30-40% to 40% in the wake of the attacks. As we have seen before, production would soon recover, but the Luftwaffe would never again regain the ability to influence Allied operations. Increasingly outnumbered and outperformed in both aircraft and quality of pilots, the Luftwaffe became a rarer and rarer sight to the bomber crews. The tide had changed. In the words of one Luftwaffe fighter pilot, quote, Every time I close the canopy before taking off, I feel that I'm closing the lid of my own coffin. Unquote. So I'm going to take a break from the B-17 to do what I think will be two episodes on the 8th Fighter Command. It'll tell the same tale from the perspective of the fighter side and fill in some background that I mostly glossed over here. After that, it'll be back to the B-17 to wrap up the story of the Flying Fortress and the European theater operations. Expect the first of those in about two to three months. Thanks for listening, and summer five.